This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So welcome to the Cadre Journal. Uh, Zayad, it's a pleasure to have you. And if you'd like to start by introducing yourself for people listening uh, and talk a little bit about your writing and sort of what you're up to now, and then we can dive into the conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you uh, so much for uh, hosting me, Joseph. So uh, I'm a graduate student uh, at Cornell University uh, uh, in Africana Studies. I'm a uh, fifth year, so I'm uh, kind of old, uh, a bit jaded. Uh, and, and in terms of my research, so I have a, a few areas uh, that I do some research on. So I have um, an interest in the history of Marxism uh, on the African continent, specifically East uh, East Africa, also North Africa to some extent. Um, in terms of other research, I also do research on uh, African intellectual history broadly conceived, specifically uh, uh, on 19th century uh, science and, and, uh, on the African continent, specifically West Africa. So that's sort of what my dissertation is on. And those topics are related to some extent. Uh, uh, but they're distinct too. Um, so, so that's sort of uh, what I do uh, uh, in very brief terms. Yeah, thanks so much. And I, I think that's kind of how I was, well, first of all, to say that we're both at Cornell, but I, that's kind of how I was introduced to you and also to read your stuff uh, as well in the context of the kind of studying African Marxism, which I'm also quite interested in. But the specific article that we're going to discuss a little bit that you wrote today is on the subject of reading Lenin in the context in the context of East African Marxism, specifically with A.M. Babu and Dani Nabuderi. So before we even jump into the these two figures, can you talk a little bit about the context of this article, the way you introduce it, as well as through the framework of rebuking the claim of Eurocentrism against Marxism-Leninism and situating these two thinkers as very vocal proponents against that and, and even in some ways not just rebuking it but adding their own contributions to Marxism-Leninism. And, and that's, I guess, part of the, the concept of the article is in the, a future of Lenin text. So it's thinking about Lenin outside of his historical context. I found that a very compelling thread to situate Lenin in the context of East African Marxism. So I'd love to perhaps start there and then even get into these two thinkers and their contributions, Marxism-Leninism. Of, of course, of course. Thank you. That, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so, so from a methodological standpoint, um, I think there is a problem with the way that lots of people have attempted to respond to charges of Eurocentrism that have been leveled at either Marx, Engels, Lenin. Uh, so one common approach which has sort of taken off in the last say two decades or so is to try to excavate Marx's unknown writings, uh, sort of marginal writings on uh, uh, on the third world or the global south use contemporary parlance. Uh, <clears throat> now I, I think people have achieved important uh, scholarly results doing that so 
but it's still really uh, it's sort of a eurocentric way to answer the charge of eurocentrism as it were uh, it doesn't move beyond that uh, circle of interlocutors um, and i think when we say we should turn to uh, uh, understanding and studying uh, the history of Marxism in the global south, we don't mean that we're going to defer to those people that we're reading, right? This isn't about a question of a kind of epistemic deference where I say, okay, they are from there, okay, that's it, the question is settled. But it's really about sort of what you need to do to say that I'm undertaking a serious investigation of this question. And I think one of the things you need to do if you're really serious about answering the question of whether Marxism is Eurocentric or not, is to examine the way it has been taken up in very different contexts uh, at different points in history uh, in the 20th century. And I mean, there, there is just a simple fact to note that if you're writing the history of Marxism in the 20th century, a lot of it, a lot of it is going to be um, about the history of Marxism in the global south, especially if you're looking at Marxism in power and political power. Um, uh, so it's, it's simply a matter of, you know, uh, basic requirements for, to have a complete inquiry or an inquiry that approximates completion in an adequate way. Uh, so I chose these two figures and maybe I can speak a bit about the context uh, in Tanzania because the, 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 neither of them is from mainland Tanzania. So Abdurrahman Muhammad Bob is from Zanzibar, uh, <clears throat> which would later be uh, assimilated to T Tanzania. And uh, uh, Dan Wadada Nabuderi is from Uganda. But so uh, if we look at uh, the wave of independence movements uh, in the mid 20th century, so um, the 1950s, 1960s are the age of sort of African independence movements. Obviously, the struggle for independence continues up to the 70s and the 90s, if you're looking at uh, South Africa, for instance. Uh, but we have a very interesting project going on in, in Tanzania, which is the attempt to construct what uh, the first president of independent Tanzania would call uh, African socialism. Uh, so the first president of independent Tanzania was uh, Julius Nyerere. And Nyerere himself is a very interesting figure because um, we can say that he was sort of more of an intellectual than many contemporary African presidents at that time. Uh, uh, he had, you know, uh, he had uh, close contacts with sort of Fabian socialists in, in England. Uh, that, that's a clear current that influences his uh, thought. Um, some sort of Christian social element, uh, Christian socialist elements as well. Um, and he was acquainted with the history of Western philosophy, with Western social and political theory as well. Uh, and in a way, we can say that Nyerere Put forward uh, was put forward as uh, not only a president, of course, uh, having executive power, but he was also, in a sense, the primary theoretician of African socialism. So in his person, these two things coincided. <clears throat> now, some of the the, uh, the, the basic tenets of uh, African socialism, uh, to understand it, we have to look at sort of the Cold War context, because so this is right, you know, after uh, World War II, you have obviously the two blocks. You have a uh, Soviet bloc and uh, an American-led Western capitalist uh, bloc. Um, and Nyerere adopts a stance that's <clears throat> kind of neutralist in the sense that uh, um, 
he tries to maintain neutrality between the two camps and sort of play them off against each other to have room for maneuver. Uh, he never antagonizes the Western camp explicitly, so there, there is definitely no attempt to antagonize them explicitly, but he also refuses some of their demands. For example, he wanted to have relations with Eastern Germany, and this was refused, and he insisted on it, and there were political repercussions for that. Uh, the other thing to note um, is <clears throat> this was an attempt to construct sort of socialism without class struggle. This is really one of the key differences if we're thinking, okay, what's the difference between African socialism and say uh, Marxism-Leninism? Uh, so Nyerere thought, if you look at the history of uh, um, Tanzania, and if you look at the contemporary reality of Tanzania in the 60s and 70s, uh, that classes have not been, there is no well-developed process of class formation. Now, it's clear if you believe that, then you cannot believe that class struggle is an important aspect of, of any social transformation because it presupposes the existence of classes. I mean, that much is, is clear. Uh, but furthermore, he thought that you could found, as a word, found socialism on uh, what is sometimes called traditional African communal values. Uh, so, uh, so uh, this this variant of socialism, uh, sometimes called Ujama socialism, which is uh, Swahili for familyhood, for sort of communal uh, communal uh, communal orientation, and he thought that this could be a sufficient basis uh, for founding socialism. And this was also a way to say, look, we we don't need to uh, import anything from outside, ideologically speaking, because we already have the the roots of socialism or an adequate philosophical foundation for socialism in pre-existing social practices. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll stop here in case you have a follow-up. Uh, so, Yeah, it's, so it, it's exactly what I, I think it's a good place to kind of go further into it to discuss Babu in particular, who you do focus quite a bit on. And there are many ways to kind of approach it, but one that struck me was a uh, as you discussed, maybe we can talk about the first aspect because you break up their interpretation of Lenin into two dimensions. One, of course, being their interpretation of imperialism and national liberation. And the second, which I'd like to come to next, of Lenin's critique of the Narodniks, which I think was very, very interesting how you tied that in. But just to begin with that first part, Lenin, as I think a lot of us know, you know, people who value anti-imperialism in some capacity understand that Lenin thought national liberation was important, as you point out, in contrast to some of his contemporaries like Rosa Luxemburg. So how did that, you know, relevance and, and thinking about how imperialism was not just about direct control, but just about an economic control, lead both to the interpretation of neocolonialism within the analysis of uh, Marxism in, in East Africa by Babu, and also to a sort of emphasis on Pan-Africanism as a, a way of formulating that national liberation as to oppose to a, a different kind of nationalism like bourgeois nationalism instead of kind of, as you point out, a very, very advanced form of interpreting uh, nationalism and pan-Africanism. Okay, great. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll just begin with a kind of very brief biographical sketch of Babu and Nabuderi, and perhaps we're gonna focus on Babu. So, so let me begin with Babu. Uh, so Babu was born and grew up in Zanzibar, uh, and he played uh, an important role in the anti-colonial movement in Zanzibar. Uh, 
Uh, and so in 1964, there is a revolution in Zanzibar and he attains the position of uh, foreign minister. Uh, however, uh, and Amrit Wilson has written uh, a great book on this. Uh, uh, it's called The Threat of Liberation. Um, I also just wanna give uh, a shout out to people who have done really important research in this area, of course. Um, so, but Babu was explicitly Marxist in a way that uh, a lot of people found threatening. Uh, so US officials were also very worried about him. They thought that he was turning Zanzibar into an African Cuba, uh, which, which is an interesting uh, way to, to frame it. Also given you know, Cuba's role in, in African liberation struggles, but that, that, that's a side issue. Um, so they kind of engineered the unification of Zanzibar uh, with uh, Tanzania uh, in, in April of 1964. <clears throat> And Babu maintained a kind of critical attitude uh, towards Nyerere's African socialism, as we mentioned. So, so this led to, to some uh, uh, tension between him and Nyerere's government. He was eventually imprisoned. So he was imprisoned from 72 to 78. I mean, there are different uh, stories being told about this. So uh, some people think actually he was imprisoned as a way to protect his life. So. I don't really have a position on this, but but I just wanted to say that there are uh, different interpretations of this. Um, and then, so so in '79, he leaves Tanzania. He goes to the United States, teaches, and kind of uh, is in different circles. Although I actually don't know much about what he did when he was in the U.S., so that that would be an interesting uh, uh, area for somebody to research. Uh, uh, and in 1984, he moves to London. <clears throat> And so while he was in exile, he continued to kind of uh, put forward theoretical contributions. So uh, um, in journals like the Journal of African Marxists, which is a very interesting journal that uh, didn't have a long life, but uh, you can find uh, almost, I think, all of the issues at Cornell. So, so that's something also if you're interested at the Cornell University. Um, you can also some of it find some of his writing in the Review of African Political Economy, which is still a running journal, uh, and in the Africa World Review. He was also very close to Eritrean independence movements, uh, to uh, uh, progressive movements also in Rwanda and Uganda as well. Um, and sorry, the question was about Babu's uh, uh, role. Sorry, the, your, your question was about Babu's role in the... the yeah, so okay. just to, to talk first about specifically how the formulation of neocolonialism could mm -hmm. kind of, as you were mm -hmm. pointing out, trace itself through discussing Lenin's specific critique of <clears throat> viewing imperialism as just yes. colonialism. Yes, okay, good. So, so I think one, one thing that, that Lenin's theory of imperialism did for both Babu and Nabudari uh, is that it showed them that so imperialism could obtain even if the relationship of direct, direct colonial rule is done away with. And that was a very important, uh, I think, important uh, discovery because that way you have a way of speaking, yes, direct colonial rule has ended, but actually direct colonial rule isn't necessary for there to be a relationship of imperialist domination between uh, the imperial country and the country which is, uh, which is subjected to this domination. <clears throat> and I think once you have that in place, uh, you start then thinking about, okay, so 
what does imperialism consist in? So one of the things that consists in is having this kind of uh, externally uh, oriented economy. So to use uh, Samir Amin's term, an extroverted economy. So in the case of Tanzania, for example, you had uh, an agricultural sector which was oriented for towards export and it was not sort of integrated with local industries. So it was oriented towards exports uh, in a way that kind of uh, uh, manifested a kind of disarticulation in the economy itself. And so on this basis, uh, Babu would come to think that Nyerere's policies weren't really directed at ending this, this articulation, that Nyerere, basically he, he never kind of questions Nyerere's good intentions. Uh, and by all accounts, Nyerere had very good intentions. Um, but there was a kind of theoretical oversight, which Babu would point out again and again, that um, if, if you don't understand that imperialism is about maintaining these disarticulated economic structures, uh, then there, is, there, is, there are going to be consequences in terms of your ability to, to create an independent Tanzania, uh, independent in a kind of substantial sense. Uh, um, but none of them doubted that this was Nyerere's objective. And I mean, Nyerere, to be fair, obviously was aware that there were problems with the domination of foreign capital over, uh, over Tanzania's economy, its banking sector specifically. Um, uh, but again, it's, it's sort of not articulated clearly in a theoretical way, I think, in Nyerere's writings. Thanks so much. And I, I'm curious to then talk a little bit about, to go into the arguments that Babu specifically is making in socialist Africa or African socialism. And you present in the second section, just to relate it to Lenin's critique of the Narodniks, this kind of view almost of uh, engaging in some of the questions about modernity, which I thought was very fascinating and talking about the kind of idealized community that in Babu's opinion, Nyerere is trying to, or, or the advocates of Ujamaa were trying to appeal to as small commodity producers rather than specifically in the interest of the proletariat. So I wonder if you could go into that and maybe first discuss Lenin's critique of the Narodniks and how Babu would then put that in the context of Tanzania. Okay, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a really uh, uh, good question. So if we, if we turn to, uh, it's actually sort of the first, uh, uh, piece that that you find in Lenin's collected works. Uh, uh, it's the first book he wrote. So uh, the book is called The Economic Content of Narodism and uh, the Criticism of It in Mr. Struva's book, which is a very like Lenin-like title, descriptive, uh, was published in 1895. <clears throat> and there, so, so obviously Marxism is not the only uh, uh, socialist movement. It's not the first socialist movement, uh, not the first socialist theory as well. Uh, in the 19th century, you had a proliferation of socialist theories in response to sort of the, the social stress that was caused by uh, 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 capitalist uh, expansion in, in these different countries, uh, whether intensification or expansion of range of scope. So in the case of Russia, um, and obviously there is 
there is a peasantry which is being dispossessed of its land and driven to the cities to form, you know, basically uh, uh, the working class in these urban centers. So lots of thinkers are thinking about, okay, this is this is kind of a problem. Uh, how are we going to approach this issue? <clears throat> so you had uh, the Narodniks, especially sort of the old Narodniks. Uh, so Lenin makes a distinction between kind of the old Narodniks uh, of the 1860s and 1870s. Um, and the new ones, so we're not going to talk about the new ones, we're just going to talk about the old ones. <clears throat> so they argued that there could, in fact, be a non-capitalist socialist development in Russia based on the traditions of village communes, the mir. And, um, and obviously, this question of uh, stagism uh, surfaces a lot in, in discussions of Marx, so, um, and people usually uh, refer to sort of Marx's study of Russian social formations towards the end of his life and sort of his claim that, yeah, it's perhaps possible to uh, develop uh, socialism on the basis of the Russian mir, the, the, the kind of communal uh, uh, village structure. So uh, the, this, this has, has kind of has been taken up in many uh, different contexts. <clears throat> but in this specific context, well, the, the Narodniks want to say that actually we don't need Marxism, because in a sense, Marxism is not applicable to conditions in Russia. Uh, so one of the things, of course, that Lenin has to do if, if you're trying to uh, sort of foster uh, a Marxist movement in Russia is to answer, answer this, this objection. So uh, Lenin's, uh, Lenin's analysis, uh, well, on the one hand, Lenin wants to show that actually the Narodniks are kind of too late, that capitalist social relations have already uh, uh, come to shape the Russian countryside in very significant ways. <clears throat> so on this basis, he, he thinks the claim is false. But then there is the other, in my view, more interesting aspect, which is kind of the ideologically critique standpoint uh, whereby he seeks to explain not the falsehood of this view, which is should be established independently, but why people would come to hold this view anyway. So for Lenin, uh, the essence of uh, Narodism, and here I'm quoting him, is that it represents the producer's interests from the standpoint of the small producer, the petty bourgeois, so uh, the small peasantry. Um, now, uh, the idea here is in thinking that development is possible on the basis of protecting kind of the small and middling peasantry uh, uh, and undermining the accumulation and concentration of land in the hands of rich peasants. Uh, the idea here is that this is a kind of theory of socialism that in reality just represents the interests of small commodity uh, producers. <clears throat> so Bob was, uh, 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 approach here is to say, well, actually, in the case of African Marxism, we have something very similar that's going on. We have a kind of, uh, well, it's similar in at least two ways. Uh, so first, we have a kind of romantic conception of uh, the traditional social structure, which obtains in these different, uh, different societies uh, at this point in history. <clears throat> and then we have this idea that based on this structure, we can kind of bypass uh, requirements that seem to, uh, to be necessary if these structures were not in place. And we can kind of develop our own idiocentric approach. So Babu characterizes the defenders of African socialism as sort of 
petty bourgeois intellectuals uh, and as or as intellectuals who kind of represent uh, the viewpoint of, of the small commodity producer. Um, so for Babu, there is a sense in which no matter what you say about Marxism, it has to be forward looking. It's not attempting to revive anything from the past. Uh, so there is a fundamental confusion if you think uh, that that what one should do is revive or kind of foster a, a form that has sort of survived uh, from the past into the present. <clears throat> uh, because both also the Narodniks uh, and the proponents of African socialism thought that the values of the peasants who lived in village communes should be preserved. Now, Lenin, uh, by contrast, he, he thinks that you know the development of capitalist relations of production in the countryside is positive uh, insofar as it kind of destroys uh, what he calls the patriarchal semi-feudal family. Uh, um, now, of course, there is a lot of debate about the extent to which perhaps this is uh, an overly optimistic view of what capitalism does in terms of uh, how it transforms social relations. <clears throat> but uh, it's clear, I think, to me that for both Babu and Nabuderi, they think that capitalism plays a kind of progressive role at a certain point in its development, and that there is something kind of incoherent about the attempt to bring about socialism while attempting to preserve or kind of resuscitate uh, what Babu refers to as social values corresponding to a pre-feudal pre mode of production. So he means here the, the village commune, um, which I think is, is, is not a popular view today, Right, because uh, it's it's seen as as a kind of uh, hyper modernist approach to you know similar to a kind of developmental uh, agenda uh, uh, in the kind of uh, 1950s 1960s development theory sense. Um, but I think again, it's the, when I say you know it's important to to kind of uh, critically examine what these people wrote. It's again, it's not to say. To put it forward and say we should uncritically laud it or something, but we should think seriously about why why they thought that. So I'm gonna stop maybe for for follow-ups. Yeah, super interesting points, and I think something that made me think a lot while reading it was kind of the similarity to a lot of Walter Rodney's reflections in the Russian Revolution of View from the Third World, where he's making a very similar argument about the need and, and you know talking about theorists in the second international um specifically kautsky and and the rest who didn't in the first instance believe that revolution could be made in russia and today how that kind of gets repositioned as a view that revolution can occur in the global south i thought it was I, this is to just pick up on a point that you made in the article which is when you mentioned uh how there is a resurging interest in imperialism in particular across the West and across the Western left in general. But there's very little recognition of theorists in the global South who have already made significant contributions to thinking about imperialism, extending Lenin's critique. So with that, I, I'm curious to reflect a little bit on that. And that I think is when you brought in Danny Nabuderi as well to talk mm -hmm. about how there are theorists who have comprehended imperialism, written about it, extended the arguments that are very much neglected on the Western left when we are talking about imperialism. And as you mentioned, the resurgence of interest in imperialism has not really brought any significant attention to those theories. 
Yeah, yeah, I, 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 and I, and I think this sort of fits a, a broader pattern. If I can kind of go on a, a small tangent, but I think it's it's relevant um, of of the way in which you know kind of phenomena from say the global south and in this case Africa in particular, the African continent specifically, uh, are sort of you know they're treated. Uh, these places are often treated as sort of uh, data collection points. Uh, they're not seen as sort of theory generating spaces and this is a point of course that uh, uh, another you know uh, thinker who's very dear to 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 my heart uh, makes very extensively um, uh, and so I, I think there is a sense in which the way the western left treats the phenomenon of imperialism um, is infected with that approach with sort of you know looking at these places as cases where you can get case studies but you're not going to get sort of theorizations that you should take seriously or engage with or even you know and by engage with i mean even attempt to refute because you know even if you're refuting something you're trying to read it and, and trying to uh, understand it <clears throat> so uh, in the case of uh, nabuderi for example well we can think of nabuderi as uh, so he has this uh, book which comes out in the 1970s. Uh, let me see if I can find the date exactly. So it's called The Political Economy of Imperialism, uh, um, where Nabuderi he uh, tries to do a few things, but 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 sort of the overall uh, uh, arc of, of the book is an attempt to show uh, the relationship between Lenin's account in, in Lenin's book on imperialism and Marx's account of capital, specifically in the third volume of Capital. Uh, where, so the idea here is one could say that, well, in, in, in his uh, book on imperialism, <clears throat> uh, Lenin does not really talk about uh, uh, Marx's account explicitly, uh, Marx's account in volume three of Capital explicitly, specifically I'm thinking of Marx's account of the tendency of the rate of uh, profit to fall. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously Lenin talks about this explicitly in other contexts, uh, but not it's not really related directly to the uh, question of imperialism. So one way to think about it is that Nabuderi is trying to provide a bridge between volume three of Capital and uh, Lenin's imperialism. Uh, and in the process, he's also trying to sort of answer some uh, some objections. So there are some kind of there are kind of classic objections to Lenin's theory of imperialism. So one objection is that um, Lenin overstates the significance of uh, overseas investments for the imperialist powers. That uh, that in fact, and this is empirically true. Uh, if we look at Britain, for instance, most of the investments went towards Australia, Canada, um, so like the white settler colonies uh, is where most of the capital was exported to. So Namudari tries to respond to this objection uh, by, for example, pointing out, well, yes, this is true, but its control of um, raw materials in, 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 in sort of the tropical and kind of subtropical countries that uh, make pro that make uh, profit making possible and in these other sort of settler colonies uh, say in the western hemisphere uh, in the case of canada for example or or uh, 
uh, or elsewhere if we're thinking about Australia. So there is an attempt to kind of respond to some of these objections. <clears throat> um, and I, I think, uh, I, and, and so, so in the article itself, I, I point to some sort of um, attempts that analyses that raise this question again, but that totally ignore uh, Nabudari's attempt to respond to these objections, which is very strange because, I mean, if you think about it, of course, you can restate the objection, but you have to respond to the response which has been leveled against the objection. Uh, but you don't see that because, again, there is a kind of very narrow or parochial uh, form of reading of intellectual engagement. That's a very good point. I think there tends to be more of a willingness to accept those arguments when they come from like Argyri Emanuel rather than kind of like referencing mm -hmm. a, an, an African thinker who's approached a very similar argument. Uh, I wanted to also definitely get a chance to talk about, I think one of the reasons that so many people are maybe rediscovering Babu in particular or talking about Babu nowadays is, is certainly the concept of Pan-Africanism. And as you mm -hmm. write in the article, it is one of those concepts that becomes uh, very much a more advanced way of thinking about nationality or thinking about nationalism rather than the, the nation state as such. So I wonder if you could kind of so maybe provide yeah. a crash course for people who haven't read Babu and, and what his idea of Pan-Africanism is and why it is so forward thinking and progressive. Okay, good, good. So. So uh, one way to, to think about this is to think about uh, the way that the national question has historically uh, been formulated in, uh, in Marxist texts, especially in the kind of first half of the 20th century. Uh, so one way to think about this is that debates about nationalism, discussions of nationalism uh, are really departing from a very uh, uh, specific European context. Um, so if you look at kind of, uh, in the article, I look at Stalin's well-known definition of, uh, of a nation and his Marxism and the national question, which uh, is from 1913. So uh, Stalin defines uh, a nation as a historically evolved stable community of language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a community of culture. Uh, and he thought sort of if none of if uh, even if uh, just one of these factors does not obtain then you you can't really characterize a given set of people as a nation well uh, i mean i don't go uh, into detail in the article but one can say that this is a very uh, central european uh, paradigm of, of nationality which makes sense because sort of the biggest national questions in, in europe at the time had to do with the people who the peoples who uh, were uh, a part of the Habsburg Empire, uh, peoples in, in Central Europe and, and the Balkans, uh, and also the nations that constitute the Russian Empire, of course, uh, Len which Lenin famously described as the the prison house of of, of nations. Um, so there is a very specific paradigm actually, which which is sort of being used to test these uh, different theories. Uh, but obviously, if you look at somebody like Babu who, who wants to uh, uh, argue for the possibility of justifying pan-Africanism from a Marxist standpoint uh, and justifying it as the most well-developed form, if you like, or the most progressive form of African nationalism, there is a big problem because 
if you take that definition, which we just talked about, well, it's not the case that uh, uh, Africans and members of the African diaspora are united by stable community of language. Then that's just blatantly uh, false, of course. Uh, um, and they also don't all share the same form of economic life. <clears throat> so if we take that definition, then the question of uh, pan-Africanism as a form of African nationalism is sort of taken off the table, uh, from at least from we're talking within a Marxist uh, framework. Uh, so for Babu, what this means is not that uh, that there isn't uh, such a thing as African nationalism in general. It just means that it's it's misguided to to uh, to conceive of it in terms of the definition which we just discussed. So instead, he uh, he thinks that something like nationalism could emerge from uh, a common history of oppression and it's sort of uh, uh, modern manifestations as well as sort of the common struggle against these forms of oppression and of course the form of oppression here is racialized imperialism uh, um, uh, or racial capitalism to use a kind of term which is uh, which is uh, uh, in greater circulation and contemporary parlance <clears throat> now for Babo, there is there is the possibility to um, to to think about uh, African peoples as a collective historical sub subject, uh, just based on the fact that they have this common history. Uh, that even you know uh, they have been forced to think of themselves collectively as Africans in the course of struggles against uh, racist colonial uh, European rule. So there is the there is this possibility of establishing. Um, uh, if you like, a wider basis for African nationalism. Um, but I do have to say also that there is uh, a part of Babu's account, which I think one can raise doubts about. So, uh, and you see this often. So there is this idea that the borders of African states are artificial, which is true, right? Because they were kind of drawn up uh, in the context of the Berlin conference and its aftermath. And if you look at any map of Africa, you'll see these borders with a very straight line. You know, it's it's sort of drawn with a ru ruler. Um, so for Babu, what this led to, and for a lot of other people too, of course, uh, is this idea that these borders have put together people who wouldn't naturally be together uh, because they have different languages, they have different perhaps religions, different uh, uh, forms of social and economic life. <clears throat> And on this basis, there is an artificiality to uh, African states, which I think is true uh, to some extent. But I think there is a sense also in which all states are artificial to that. You know, this kind of, uh, if we think about Germany or France, for example, we can think about this uniformity. There is such a thing as Germanness or, or, or being French. But this uniformity, of course, is the result of a historical process as well. You know, you had all of these. Uh, so in France, you had. Uh, all of these languages which have basically been rendered extinct, uh, all of these separate regional identities which have been destroyed and subsumed uh, under a kind of central uh, identity. <clears throat> so I think there is, there, is, uh, there is something in Babu's account that's attempting to pick out uniqueness when uniqueness isn't perhaps there or is not there in as strong a way as he thinks it's there. So uh, this is sort of just my side kind of, uh, note uh, on, on Babu's uh, 
uh, account of, of the states that emerged uh, as a as a result of uh, uh, of colonial rule on, on the African continent. Because I think for Babu, he would be happy if there were regional blocks or if there were sort of uh, things bigger than regional blocks, of course. Uh, I mean, ideally, he would think of a kind of uh, federated African Union. Uh, but he also doesn't want people to go back to uh, uh, these smaller units, right, of nations within nations, um, because you can imagine, you know, this this kind of discourse can lead to the idea that well, actually, we have to break up Kenya, we have to break up uh, all of these countries into smaller constituent countries, which would play in the hands, of course, of of people who who have a vested interest in in, in weakening uh, these uh, countries and societies. Yeah, it's a, a very good point. And it, it's interesting because there's also there is a section of the article as well that, that I thought a claim by Babu in this context as well would perhaps visit some some challenge today or, or perhaps could be under consideration where he says there's nothing uniquely African in an area where finance capital has united all the peoples of the world under its rule. An African proletariat is no less international than an Asian one or European one. They're all exploited by the same monopolies, the same class, the same capital, only in different measure. There can be, therefore, there can therefore be no different general solution to the problem of imperialist exploitation. In the context of, of what we're discussing, which is his claim, you know, considered in the context of the debate with Nyerere and Ujima, as well as his own consideration on pan-Africanism rather than a sort of limited bourgeois nationalism or Stalin's definition of nationalism. I wonder about this claim and, and considering the debates that have, and maybe this is more contemporary, but the debates that have been playing out in journals like the Review of African Political Economy on the subject of super exploitation on the, of the global South proletariat and, and Rodney's consideration of those debates, because I know that has been a, a subject that a lot of people go back and forth on a lot. And when reading this quotation, I thought it was interesting because though he does mention the of a different level of exploitation claim, which I think is accurate, he does seem to still have a consideration for a sort of potential for solidarity of the Western working class and the global South working class or the African working class in a way that some scholars have kind of, you know, Marxist theorists of imperialists, whether it's in the context of unequal exchange or other considerations have been a little bit more critical of. So I wonder your thoughts on, on his engagement with that debate as well. Okay, that, that, that's a very interesting question. So actually, the, the quote, uh, I mean, this is a minor point, but but the the quote you, you point to is by Nabudari, who tends to have this. So the interesting thing is, so Nabudari at this point in time, he's very hostile to dependency theory uh, for a variety of reasons. So one reason he puts forward is by emphasizing exchange, it's kind of uh, unequal exchange. It's basically uh reverting back to a pre-marxist standpoint uh in the sense that it's asserting that exploitation uh in the world capitalist system happens at the point of exchange which <clears throat> is sort of uh was the orientation of pre pre-marxist ricardian political economists although i mean at that in, in that context it's a bit different because they're talking about where exploitation happens 
in a factory, for instance. So the thought exploitation happens at the point of exchange. Uh, so it's a kind of form of wage theft, if, if you will. Uh, now, of course, Marx, uh, I think this is unambiguous in Marx that Marx thinks that exploitation happens at the point of production, not at the point of exchange. Um, uh, in a way, this, this is sort of, I think, one of the things that set Marx apart from leftist Ricardians or Ricardian socialists in the 1830s, 1840s in England. Uh, but but we, we don't need to go into that. But that's sort of one of Nabudari's uh, objection to the, uh, objections to uh, dependency theory. Uh, and here he's going after like all, all the, the people that you might associate with that, Andre Gunder Frank and on the African continent, of course, Samir Amin. Uh, uh, he's very hostile to it, uh, actually in a kind of um, uh, excessive way, perhaps. He's very polemical in his uh, orientation. But the other reason uh, that he worries uh, about this is that he thinks that if you uh, if you take the claims of these theorists seriously, you might think that there is no possibility of solidarity between the proletariat and the global north, uh, which I think was the question you were raising, really, uh, and the proletariat and the global south. Uh, and for him, that would be kind of a politically catastrophic outcome. Uh, uh, so those are sort of the the two main considerations that drive his antagonism towards this uh, orientation. <clears throat> um, I mean, obviously, there, there are a variety of responses to this. So one response would be to look at, well, can't exploitation at the point of exchange apply in terms of, say, we're thinking of the peasantry in the global south, where they're kind of small commodity producers. Um, uh, and there is sort of um, the exploitation happens in terms of price manipulation on the global market, for example. So, so that's that's one approach that some people uh, took because this is sort of uh, this debate is going on at the Dar es Salaam University, and you have other participants. Um, uh, so, some of them are well known today. Some of them are not well known. So, Mahmoud Mamdani, for example, was kind of who's pretty well known today was one of those participants. Rodney was one of those participants. Uh, and then you have others who are, uh, who are today uh, less uh, uh, well-known. <clears throat> but it's true that uh, I think I would say Nabudari's hostility to dependency theory is perhaps based on a caricature of, of dependency theory. Uh, and I mean, I've spoken to people uh, uh, who uh, knew Nabudari personally, so uh, uh, I'll mention something that uh, Professor Ibrahim Abdullah uh, um, uh, told me, who, who knew him personally, that Nabudari was a kind of one, he, he described him, what did he describe him as, as uh, a one-man army. He, he was very good at making enemies with everyone, even potential allies, so there is that element to his personality as well. And I think in even in your chapter, I think you mentioned something to the effect of like the, the only people who knew him were in his sort of circle of friends and, and everyone else he was sort of cold with, which I, I think is an interesting dimension to reading his his very, as you mentioned, very polemical statements like that. And you get a kind of sense that he wasn't as open um, in his discussions. I, I wanted to just maybe take on one final topic of, of analysis, which is throughout kind of making references to the fact of 
you know, why, why consider this today in the context of, of African revolution or African Marxism? And you point out that a lot of the contributions being made here are also to the extent of thinking beyond a specifically anti-colonial project and trying to think of like an anti-neo-colonial project, if, if probably not the best way of mm-hmm. summarizing it, but saying that the current kind of struggle is, is against a state of neo-colonialism. In the, in the context of the conversations between Babu and, and Nyerere or his critique of Ujamaa, and also reading some of the recently published or recently discussed articles that Rodney wrote critiquing Nyerere, like his uh, the recently rediscovered Hamburg lectures where he talks about Ujamaa and some of its faults. And he's very critical of, you know, even within him as someone who had at one point supported Ujamaa and said it was scientific socialism. And then it seems later in his life, he had a sort of change of heart. But I wonder if in that context, Babu and Rodney's critiques of Ujamaa as a not not as socialism, as something else, or as a perhaps a failed attempt to construct socialism on the basis of a, as you talked about in the article, an idealized, you know, pre-colonial sort of civilization view. I wonder in trying to theorize what, you know, if Rodney and Babu, two thinkers who are sorely needed nowadays, if they were still alive, would make of the current state of conflict in a society like Tanzania or across the African continent against neocolonialism, because that definitely does seem to be the phase that we're in. But we can also perhaps from their writings glean that Ujamaa was not a solution to that problem. So, so, so I, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated because they all supported Ujamaa to some extent because they thought it was a national liberation project, right? Because you could support a project not under the description that it's socialist. You might not agree with that description, which they didn't, but that it's it's sort of a project that seriously aims at um, buttressing or, or uh, um, making possible real national independence. Uh, and I thought to this, uh, and I think to this extent, they were supporters. But the problem I think is that they thought the lack of uh, a serious theory of imperialism impeded the, the goals of that project. So it's sort of an internal critique where sort of one shares the goals, but you, you say, look, you know, you cannot really achieve these goals if you like these tools uh, and we're trying to provide you with these tools. Uh, um, <clears throat> So to this extent, it's it's not a kind of critique from a utopian standpoint, right? They do not have a kind of ideal social form against which they're measuring, you know, societies and saying, well, this is not socialist enough. This is, you know, this is uh, uh, like a nationalist bourgeois project or something like that. Well, the problem with the nationalist bourgeois project is that they failed as nationalist bourgeois projects. That that's also like the big issue, right? They failed to. Uh, uh, to break with the cycle of dependency. And I mean, if we look at, you know, um, well, we, we, we can kind of speculate on what they might have thought, but we can also sort of look at what happened. I mean, uh, Nyerere eventually uh, had to concede uh, uh, to uh, the IMF's terms for restructuring because Tanzania had taken on massive, massive debt. And I mean, he resigned eventually. Uh, and sort of fulfilled fulfilled this function as a spokesperson uh, uh, against the indebtedness of the global south uh, 
against exploitation but there is a sense in which Nyerere's project failed but there is also another sense in which it succeeded because if you look at Tanzania today you have a kind of uniform national language which is Swahili uh, uh, I mean and Tanzania of course is very ethnically diverse uh, um, religiously diverse and yet for, 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 for the most part it is stable as a state uh, you don't have a lot of internal disturbances, certainly nothing like civil wars. So to this extent, you know, we can say that Nyerere's uh, project succeeded uh, uh, at this level, at least. <clears throat> I mean, in terms of contemporary struggles, well, I mean, one can approach this in very, uh, uh, in, in, in different ways. Uh, so if we think about, let's take one angle, for example, the, the China angle, uh, so regardless of one's characterization of, of China, it's clear, of course, that uh, uh, increased uh, Chinese economic presence on the African continent can give uh, countries like Tanzania greater room to maneuver, to ask for better terms, whether it's from the West or from China itself. <clears throat> and yet people like Babu, of course, they understood that uh, to kind of extrapolate from what Babu was saying. So Babu didn't think that, you know, you'd solve Tanzania's problems, for example, by just shifting all of your trade and becoming uh, a trade partner with the Eastern Bloc, with the, 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 the Socialist Bloc. He thought that might be a part of the solution, but really the, the problem has to do with internal restructuring of, of, uh, of your economy. And to this extent, I think, uh, thinking about contemporary developments, we can say that these developments, sort of the end of a unipolar world, for instance, give uh, give breathing space, but really by itself, nothing nothing guarantees that you're going to have sort of internal progressive developments. Uh, that will be the outcome, I think, of uh, internal social struggles, class struggles in, in these countries and countries like uh, Tanzania. And I think I think that would be kind of um, I think in the spirit of of, of Babu's. Uh, orientation now. Well, thanks so much. That is a great answer. And I think that is very much prompting further inquiry, as you said, to look more into what these thinkers would think about the current state of affairs on the continent. I guess my last thing would be for people who are listening, and I assume there are people listening who haven't heard of Babu or Nabudere before, I wonder if you could mention some texts that people should consult if they're interested in reading more about them. Yes, so uh, I can mention some texts, but I'm also happy to kind of, uh, I don't know if there is uh, the possibility to have, uh, you know, a small text with a bibliography. Uh, I mean, I'd be happy to compile that. Uh, but so some texts in terms of secondary accounts I already mentioned, Amrit Wilson's uh, The Threat of Liberation. Uh, imperialism and revolution in Zanzibar. So that was published by uh, Pluto Press in 2013. Um, in terms of, um, let me see, in terms of the texts by uh, uh, Nabudari and, uh, and Babu, uh, one sort of text that gives uh, an overview of Babu's thinking, but it's, it's perhaps uh, not so accessible is uh, well, actually, no, sorry, it's been reprinted. So let me find uh, the reprinting of it. But okay, let, let me talk about Nabuderi. So for Nabuderi's text, 
people should check out uh, Imperialism in East Africa, which came out in two volumes, uh, both published by Z Press in 1981. And I think the second volume is like 83 or, or something like that. Uh, you should, people should also check out uh, African, uh, Babu's African Socialism or Socialist Africa, uh, which also came out with uh, Z Press uh, in 1981. Um, and you have also in Abu Dhabi's text, uh, The Political Economy of Imperialism. Uh, the subtitle is It's Theoretical and Polemical Treatment from Mercantilist to Multilateral Imperialism. Again, that also came out with Z Press. So Z Press were doing really good work at the time. Uh, and there is a collected, uh, a collected, uh, a volume of uh, Babu's collected works. Uh, it's called The Future That Works, uh, Selected Writings of A.M. Babu. And this is edited by Salma Babu and Amrit Wilson. Uh, and people can get that. This is still in print, so you can get it. Uh, it's published by the Africa World Press. Uh, um, <clears throat> So I, I'd say these are these are the the main texts. And if people want to sort of figure out, uh, want to find out more about the context in Tanzania at the time, I'd recommend that they pick up uh, Seth Markle's uh, book, which came out in 2017. So it's called A Motorcycle on Harran, Tanzania: Black Power and the Uncertain Future of Pan Africanism, uh, 1964 to uh, 1974. Um, uh, the other thing I'd say is that we've been looking at uh, Nabudari's uh, uh, approach or sort of theoretical orientation in the 70s and 80s to some extent, but he later on uh, took a very different theoretical turn. And if people want to uh, sort of uh, think about how he retrospectively uh, sees his contributions to these debates, I would recommend that they pick up his biography. Well, it's not a biography, it's a study uh, of the South African anthropologist Ar uh, Archie Mafeji. Uh, so it's called Archie Mafeji, Scholar, Activist and Thinker. And this was published in Pretoria by the Africa Institute of South Africa in 2007. I think this one's easily accessible too. Um, in terms of other uh, other stuff, uh, about Tanzania. So uh, if people want to learn more about uh, Ujama in, in Tanzania, they can check out uh, Priyalal's work. Um, people can also, of course, people should read Nyerere himself. So uh, I think you can find some, some speeches by Nyerere on the Marxists uh, internet archive, I believe so. Um, but if people also want a more extensive collection, they can check out uh, uh, his his speeches from uh, 65 to 67. So this uh, was published by Oxford University Press. It's called Freedom and Socialism, uh, selection from writings and speeches. So this one is a bit hard to find, but I think there might be a kind of PDF copy or something on the on the internet. Uh, yeah, and I think you know I think that's that's enough. I guess in terms of uh, recommendations. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll help put the uh, bibliography together so we can put it in the description and people can go and read those and get the links and everything. Awesome. Cool. Thank, thank, thank you so, so much, much. For, for the great questions. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this. And it was a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can do another one of these in the future because you have other writings on specifically on Emil Clark Cabral that I would love to 
maybe take a stab at later in the future. Yeah, that, then that would be great. I'm always uh, happy to speak about Cabral. I'm going to show you my Cabral. Piece. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. It's amazing. Uh, cool. Awesome. Thank you awesome. so much. Yeah, thank you. I'll stay in touch. All right. Take care, Joseph. Thank you. Thanks. You too.